Uh, and now we will move right into the message. Uh, so at uh, Emmanuel, <clears throat> I've been there for about two years now, and uh, we started working through the book of Matthew when I arrived. And uh, this, this, there's no secret I'm preaching the sermon that I preached this morning to you all tonight. So uh, Corey gets to hear it twice. Um, but we started chapter 20 this morning, and it's been this real wonderful opportunity uh, to go very slowly uh, through the book of the Bible and to be just impressed with who Jesus is and all that he's done for us. And the parable um, that we're looking at tonight is, I imagine, a familiar one to all of you. Uh, it's the parable of the, the vineyard owner, and um, you can find that in Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 1 through uh, 16. I hear the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, A friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open. I didn't bring any slides over with me, and we'll be referencing the text as we go. Um, but before we jump in, let me pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. Um, without it, as we've said, we wouldn't even know you. And, um, and yet, even as believers, even as Christians, we need you to act and to move, uh, to illuminate it to us. And so we pray, God, that you would do just that, that we might be moved to worship, we might be moved to adoration, um, to see Christ in you, Father, as the gracious God you are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know how many of you know this or not, but before I became a pastor, well, I, I started pastoring at 36 years old uh, in Escalon. And uh, before that, I was a claims adjuster for an insurance company. And uh, every year in uh, my field, we would receive what's called a performance review. I'm sure many of you are familiar uh, with uh, corporate world annual uh, performance reviews. And there were basically three categories you could fall into on that review. It could be um, you could be an employee who does not meet expectations, which, of course, no one wants to be in that category. 
Uh, or you could be an employee who meets expectations. Uh, or you could be an employee who exceeds expectations. And I always wanted to be an employee who exceeded expectations. And one of the interesting uh, things that you figure out in the corporate world is that they're always changing the expectations a little bit. Like, so I was a claims adjuster who wrote estimates on cars. And you know, some years, what they really cared about is that the accuracy of my estimate was really high. Well, then guess what? I focused on the accuracy of my estimate. Uh, other years, they really cared about having really good customer service scores. So then I would spend more time with the customers and make sure that they were happy with me. Uh, another year, they'd care about um, numbers. They'd want you to do as many assignments in a day as you could possibly get done. Well, then I threw estimate accuracy and customer service out the window, and I just started writing as many estimates as I could. Because to be an exceeds employee, that's how you get raises. That's how you set yourself up for promotions. And at the time... I didn't know that I was actually going to be a pastor, although I was in seminary. And so I wanted to make sure that I was setting myself up at Allstate uh, to have a solid career uh, for the long run. And so here's my question uh, for us tonight. In the Christian life, is there such thing as a Christian who does not meet expectations? Or a Christian who meets expectations? Or a Christian who exceeds expectations? Think about it. And I imagine there, there's some of us who are thinking, well, yeah, that sounds kind of right. But no, that doesn't, that doesn't sound right. Well, let me give you a couple examples. So imagine um, a uh, missionary who spends 30 years in the hot jungle with no AC, uh, eating bugs, uh, bringing thousands of people to Christ. All right, well, you kind of want to say, well, maybe that missionary has exceeded expectations. And then we think about the other side of the person who struggles to even believe that Jesus is real. They are struggling with the same sins their whole life, uh, um, always kind of just, you know, barely getting by. And, you know, at the end of their life, there's some real evidences of true faith, but everybody's kind of thinking that guy, you know, he barely squeaked into the kingdom. And so from a worldly perspective, you, you, you look at that and you think, well, that seems like that person met expectations and it seems like that person uh, failed to meet expectations. And, and then most Christians, I think, are just trying to meet expectations. You know, I want to I wanna do well and enjoy my life and no hell, you know. If I could just somehow uh, get that sort of middle road. But what's funny about Jesus, especially in the book of Matthew, is he, the demand and the call— is for all of us to exceed expectations, right? Take up your cross and follow me. In fact, he says, if any of you would be my disciple, you must take up your cross and follow me. So in our passage this morning, or this evening, I might say this morning several times because it's actually written in my manuscript, uh, Jesus is going to help us connect the dots between our labors in the kingdom of heaven and the rewards that he promises us for our labors. Uh, so here's the outline this morning. I don't know if you're taking notes, but uh, it's just three simple questions we're going we're gonna to ask. First is, why is Jesus telling this parable? And so we're going to peek back at the um, passage before uh, for that. Uh, the second question we're going to ask is just simply, what does this parable teach us? And for that point, we're going to walk through the parable and, and uh, take a look at that. And then finally, uh, what does this parable mean for us? What's the significance? Once we know what it teaches us, what's the significance in our lives? Uh, So first, why is Jesus telling this parable? 
Well, right before this passage is this passage of the rich young ruler, and that's the story uh, where the young man comes up to Jesus and he asks him, hey, wh- what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you got to obey all the commandments. And he's like, well, which ones? And Jesus, you know, lists off several of the commandments and he says, well, I've obeyed all of those from my youth. And Jesus says, great, uh, you lack one thing, go and sell everything and come and follow me. And then he goes away sad because he he just cannot part with all of his riches. He doesn't believe uh, that following Jesus would be worth giving up everything uh, for. And so the thing that he's missing really is faith in Jesus. He believes Jesus is a good teacher, but he does not believe Jesus is worth uh, taking up his cross and, and following him. And then what's interesting is right after that, actually I should open up my Bible. I don't have the, oh no, I do have it in there. Uh, look back at chapter 29. Or sorry, chapter 19, verse 28. Right before this, Peter realizes, you know, hey, Jesus, that's what we all did. We, we all left our nets and, and came and followed you. Wow, we did exactly, we did exactly what you asked this rich young ruler to do and he wouldn't do. We did it. What, what are we going to get? And, and Jesus says this in verse 28 of chapter 19. He says, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So these disciples are going to receive an amazing reward. They're going to be so glorious. They're going to be given such power and authority that they are going to sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel, who at this point in time in Jesus's life uh, are rejecting him. They, They don't want Jesus to be their Messiah and King. And his disciples are going to sit in judgment on them. Wow. What a, what a privilege and a responsibility. What a reward. But not only that, he says, everyone, Everyone who leaves everything to follow Jesus will receive a reward that is at least 100 times better than, than your home, than your lands, and then even your family. Now, some of the things that we value and cherish the most in this life, Jesus is saying, hey, you give up those things, the reward is 100 times better. So it sort of seems like Jesus is saying that this is what it looks like for an exceeds employee, (laughs) right? Because there are great rewards awaiting believers in heaven. Uh, Don't don't jump back, but in Matthew 5, uh, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So it seems pretty clear that this reward is connected to how we live our lives. Um, It also seems like, um, you know, if we don't endure persecution, then maybe our reward won't be as great. And Jesus tells his disciples this truth, and he tells us this truth, because he wants us to know that it's worth it. Don't be like the rich young ruler who chose his earthly riches and went away sad. Don't love the world. Don't hold on to your sin. Don't deny Jesus to avoid suffering. 
Go ahead and suffer. Great is your reward. Don't hold anything back from God in this life. Don't hedge your bets, right? As if somehow there's this way to take this middle road where we hold on to the world and make sure we get heaven too. It's just not how the kingdom works, right? Read your Bible, pray, know him deeply, come to church, receive the means of grace. Um, These are all really wonderful, wonderful things. Because the one who is faithful with little will be entrusted with much. Matthew 6, Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. Jesus tells us all this because he wants us to be confident that to walk in his ways, to trust his commands, to live as he's called us to live, is worth it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing in this life and the next. But here's my question. What do sinful human beings tend to do with the promise of reward? Do we, are we able to just set it aside and think, oh, great, whatever, whatever you give me, Jesus, I'll be content with that? Or do our hearts want to make it a competition? Well, you know, I know I'm doing better than that guy over there. I know I'm suffering more than she is. Or we just make it all about the reward, wondering what our reward is going to be. We start to think we're earning it. Or we get despondent and we despair because maybe we know we don't deserve it. And we wonder, will Jesus reward me with as sinful as my heart really is? And if we do start to think we're earning it, we'll start to think we deserve it. If we start to think we deserve it, we'll start to feel like we're owed it. And then we'll actually start to demand that God give it to us as well, right? And then it'll feel unfair to us if people who don't seem like they've earned it are getting better rewards than us. And Jesus does not want his disciples to go down this road. So he wants them to know that there are rewards because he wants them to know it's worth it. But then he goes on, right? And he's going to say this because he does not want them to go down that reward. He says, but, in verse 30 of chapter 19. So we're back in the text again. And that word, but, we can just read by it so easily sometimes. Uh, But that word is, it's a concessive, right? So he's... um, It's a contrary statement to everything that he's just said before. So he's basically saying, nevertheless, right? Even though you're getting rewards, nevertheless, it's also true that many who are first will be last and the last first. And Jesus says this because he wants us to know how we should be thinking about potential rewards. If we're working and serving and leaving everything to follow Jesus just for the reward, just to be a exceeds employee, even if we are the most accomplished Christian in the world, even if we've earned first place in line, if we're doing it just for the reward, we will end up last. 
So think about our missionary, right? He's very proud of himself. Imagine that he's very proud of himself because he went on the mission field. He loves coming back and everybody basking in how wonderful he is. And, oh, wow, you've done something no one could ever do. It's so amazing, everything that you do. Right? You can see how it can just turn really dark, even if on the outside it looks like somebody's doing all these really wonderful things. Okay, so what now does this parable teach us? That's our second point. So Jesus has just assured us uh, that those who follow him, even if it costs us everything, will be greatly rewarded. Then he warns us not to pursue the reward in and of itself. Don't work so you can be first place in line just to receive the reward, because that's actually how you end up last place in line in the kingdom. And then he tells our parable, okay? So in verse 1, he says, for, or because, or since, everything I just said. Now, this, this parable is totally connected to everything that he just said in chapter 19. The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. So notice this story, Jesus is wanting us to know what the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay? And given what he's just said about potential rewards, he's telling us this story so that we will know that in the kingdom of heaven, God is totally free to be as generous as he wants. So that's where we're going with our our parable here. And if we're comparing our rewards to how hard we think we worked versus how hard someone else worked, then we're missing the point. Uh, we also shouldn't overlook the fact that Jesus is using a vineyard as his uh, analogy. In the Old Testament, Israel was God's vineyard. Uh, and Israel was supposed to be the place where everyone could go to find out what the kingdom of heaven was like. And so he's kind of combining his New Testament language with Old Testament imagery as well. So Jesus tells us about a vineyard owner. He goes out early in the morning or literally at dawn uh, to hire workers for his vineyard. And uh, in agricultural communities, which this is one, uh, I imagine, I don't know if there's day laborers, but I know in, um, uh, there's a lot of times seasonal workers, right? Um, but here, having a day laborer was very common. Uh, you would go out to the marketplace uh, or the town square, hire somebody for the day, especially uh, during harvest when you needed more workers. And uh, Jesus offers them a denarius, which was the uh, common or average wage for the average worker of the time. Uh, it's actually very generous pay uh, for day laborers. We don't usually pay our day laborers the um, average daily wage of an average American worker. We usually pay them a little bit less, and it was the same back then. And so that was actually a generous salary for the day. And so, so far in our story then, there's nothing odd or surprising. We have a vineyard owner who's clearly supposed to represent God. Uh, a vineyard is supposed to represent the kingdom of heaven. And he's doing something very common and expected of a vineyard owner, going out and hiring daily workers, okay? Everything's very normal in the first two verses. And then it starts to get strange. Uh, Look at verse 3 through verse 5. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, the ninth hour, he did the same. Uh, so they had a 12-hour workday, roughly 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, the third hour would have been 9 a.m. The sixth hour would have been 12 p.m. The ninth hour would have been 3 p.m. And we don't know why uh, he keeps going out throughout the day to get more workers. All we know is that for some reason, 
He keeps going out to get more workers, and he promises to pay them whatever is right. Now, if you are a a day worker in this time, in this economy, more than likely, if you weren't hired at 6 a.m., you were not going to be hired at all. Um, But for some reason, these workers are still hanging around, hoping to get hired, because if they don't work, they don't get paid. And when this man comes to offer to pay them whatever is fair, even if he pays them a small penance, it's at least better than what they would have gotten paid for standing there doing nothing all day. And so they, they take it, trusting that he really will uh, pay them whatever is fair. Uh, and it is odd that the owner would go out three times in one day to get more workers. And you could sort of understand it, maybe if he was just this really disorganized guy, or maybe all these new projects keep popping up throughout the day. Um, but, but it still makes no sense because most vineyard owners would know all the work they needed to get done that day. And they would want just as many workers as they would need to get that done. So even though you can maybe come up with a scenario or why he keeps going out throughout the day, let's just admit that it's, it's pretty strange. But then the vineyard owner uh, does something that makes absolutely no sense at all. Uh, in verse 6, And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. So the eleventh hour was five o'clock. There's one hour left in the workday. Whatever they could possibly get done in that last hour could easily be pushed off to the next day. So what's going on here? Maybe... Maybe there was some project that came up at the last minute and he just needed more workers. And so he goes out and he, he finds a few more. But the real question is, why didn't he just hire enough workers at the beginning of the day? Why? It makes no sense to keep going out over and over and over again throughout the day especially because these workers make it seem like they've been there all day and we have no reason to doubt them. They were probably there when he went out at six o'clock in the morning. So either way, no matter how you look at it, this whole situation makes no sense and then it gets even more strange. Uh, Verse eight. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And then those hired about the 11th hour came. Each of them received a denarius. What? So not only does it make, not make any sense that he even hired them in the first place, but then he gives them an entire day's wage for one hour of work. I looked it up. The average American worker makes $220 a day. For 12 hours, not counting overtime, uh, that would be about $18 an hour. For nine hours, that's $27 an hour. For six hours, that's $37 an hour. For three hours, that's $73 an hour. But for one hour, that's $220 an hour. I don't know about you all, but I would be willing to work for that. So what is the point of this story? Well, first, let's, let's, let's just ease our minds about what the point is not, right? Uh, Jesus is not telling business owners how they should think about paying their employees. No business owner should have their conscience bound that this is a principle that they ought to go by in terms of paying their employees. Uh, Jesus is not telling us this story to remind us how important it is to make sure we know uh, how many employees we need at the beginning of the day. No, he's telling this story 
to help us know what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the kingdom of heaven is a place where God is always going out to get more people to bring into his vineyard, right? And they're there not because it's harvest. What's funny is that Jesus doesn't even say it's harvest. We, we t- all the commentators I read said, well, you know, it could be harvest, you know, because everybody's trying to figure out why would this guy be doing this? And, oh, well, it must be harvest. Well, it doesn't even say it's harvest. We, we've supplied that because we're so desperately trying to make sense of this story. No. God brings workers into his vineyard because God is generous and gracious and merciful. The vineyard owner is not hiring workers for his sake. The vineyard owner is hiring workers for our sake because we so desperately need to be inside the kingdom working his vineyard. The only way this story makes any sense is if we see that the one thing this vineyard owner cares about is adding more workers to the kingdom. And Jesus is reminding us that he is a merciful and gracious king, the kind of king who pours out blessings on his people for no reason. And the reason we struggle to understand this story, I think, is because we're, apart from Christ especially, not like this. I'll look at verse um, 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, which, of course, we would have as well, right? But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So, uh, in the real world, this would be unfair, I think. We would all, we would all feel the unfairness of this. Uh, I, I imagine most of you have had children or been around children, and how many times have you heard them say, that's not fair, right? Because we're born with this sense of like, hey, I ought to be treated equal. Um, uh, if you're a kid and your mom gives you an ice cream bar, uh, or your brother feels like he should have one too, right? Uh, the analogy I thought of, if you're, if you're at the grocery store, how many, have you ever been to the grocery store and you're in line and you're the next in line and they, they come, a new checker comes and instead of grabbing you, they grab the person at the end of the line. And you're like, hello, they just got there. I've been waiting here for two minutes. You know? Again, we, we have this real sense of fairness. But that's the point, right? Jesus is not telling us what the real world is like. He's telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And in the kingdom of heaven... Would we really want God to judge us fairly? No. No, in the kingdom of heaven, it's the fact that God would even invite us to work in his vineyard that should completely amaze us. Because we're not innocent day laborers who need a job. We're rebels. We're insurrectionists. We're people who've killed the vineyard owner's son and who apart from Christ, would rather burn down the vineyard. And yet God, in his mercy and his grace, he opens up our eyes to see how wonderful it is to be a citizen of his kingdom. He moves our heart and causes us to long to work in his vineyard 
and to be content no matter when he hires us in um, because we see uh, what he's done for us. And once we're in the kingdom, if it does seem like he's treating somebody more unfairly than us, uh, usually it's because we are not pausing to consider just how gracious and merciful he's been to us. And how wonderful it is that we've been brought in. Uh, because the reality is, is he could have left us in the marketplace. Right? He did not have to bring us in in the first place. And the point of this story is that God is free to do whatever he pleases. And that everything he does is good and right and has a purpose. So look at verse 13. But the vineyard owner replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? See, even if we look at this from a real-world situation, it's actually fair. (laughs) It's actually not like the checker. Because... If it was like the checker, then we would have agreed to be in that place in line. We would have agreed to let that, you know what I mean? He was being totally fair with the 6 a.m. worker. But he wanted to be super gracious with the 11th hour worker. Um, God tells Moses in Genesis 33, Paul quotes this in Romans 9. Um, but God says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion and I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Because that's what it means to be God. God is free to do whatever God wants. You know, why will, why will uh, it's like the potter and clay, you know, will the thing formed me say, why did you make me this way? And God says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Right? But notice now what happens to the workers who think the vineyard owner is somehow unfair. He tells them to take what belongs to them and go. So if we think it's so unfair here in the kingdom of heaven, then go. If we think somehow God is unfair just because he chooses to deal with someone differently than us, then we're free to leave. And verse 16, so, Jesus says, or that could be translated thus, or in this way, the last will be first and the first last. So they were first in the kingdom, They worked harder than anyone on behalf of the kingdom. But in the end, they left the kingdom because they thought the king was unfair. This would be the person who grows up in church their whole life and they're on all the committees, they're on the evangelism committee, sharing the gospel, serving. Um, They're a part of one of the prayer leaders. But then as they get old and maybe their spouse dies or their kid dies before them, they think somehow it's just not fair. It's not fair, God. And I'm not saying those situations aren't incredibly hard. And I don't know that something similar hasn't happened to someone in this room. Uh, But the reality is, is we have a good and gracious king. And the more we're focused on the fact that he even invited us in, the more we will be content with whatever he brings into our lives. 
And so I know I'm going long here, but that's because this is a morning sermon and not an evening sermon. I have one last question to ask. What does this parable mean for us? Uh, The most important thing we need to know is that what made the first workers last is that they thought they should be first. That somehow by starting earlier, working longer, working harder, that they had earned something. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no such thing as a Christian who exceeds expectations. Uh, Nor is there a single one of us who even meets expectations. And if we did, we would only be doing what's required. In Luke 17, Jesus tells this parable about a slave who's out in the fields all day long, and then he comes in and the master asks him to make him his meal first. And Jesus asks, you know, is it unfair that the slave has to work all day and now come in and work even longer to make his master his meal? And Jesus' point is no, he's a slave. And so in uh, Luke 17.10, Jesus says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, who have only done what was our duty. So we cannot exceed expectations. All that we can do is confess that we are unworthy servants who have only done our duty. We can't earn anything in the kingdom of heaven. We don't deserve a break, although he still graciously gives us breaks. And we had communion this morning, and that was kind of my point with communion. He comes and he serves us and he feeds us because he's such a kind and gracious king, but not because we deserve it. Uh, We haven't earned a pat on the back. If we do any work in the vineyard, all we've done is our duty. And so the point of this parable is that God is so generous and merciful and full of grace and kindness that he's willing to reward us as if we have met our exceeded expectations, as if we've worked all day in the scorching sun, because that's the kind of God we serve. And yes, Jesus encourages us that we will be rewarded for our suffering and for our labors, but not because we've earned it just because God is generous. This is Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 63. The question is, how can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? And the answer is, this reward is not earned. I love the catechism. It's just so simple. Uh, Well, the reason is, is because you haven't earned anything, right? It is a gift of grace. So everything is grace. Everything's a gift. Our place in the kingdom is a gift. Our work in the vineyard is a gift. No matter how much we work, we will always be unworthy servants. Uh, And we do so knowing that he would never hold anything back from his children whom he loves. Uh, Romans 8.32, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So every Christian has been promised that he will graciously give us all things. So we should never be jealous of the 11th hour Christian, right? The thief on the cross is the ultimate 11th hour Christian, and we all love that story. Um, but, but in real life, it, it gets a lot harder, right? Uh, so I have a couple of questions here just for application. Are we willing to celebrate when our fellow brother or sister is given a gift that we have longed for our whole lives? Are we willing to celebrate the success of someone else's business as ours is crumbling? Are we willing to celebrate their long life in the midst of our debilitating illness? 
Are we willing to celebrate God's mercy and grace, even if we're fighting that same temptation our whole lives? And I'm only 44 right now, but recently I've resigned myself to that just might be the way it is. Uh, my, I'm sure you're the same. My personality is structured in a certain way. Um, the same sort of sin struggles I've had as a kid. I'm, I've literally been fighting them my whole life. And they just sort of like morph and change into different manifestations of the same kind of heart issue. And there's a certain point where I sort of realized, okay, I think that the Lord just wants me to battle these kind of thoughts and these kind of feelings my whole life. And, and I think that's okay. Uh, not because I want to, but because he sustained me this far and I trust that he will continue to sustain me. Are we willing to trust that we serve a good and gracious and merciful king who's promised to graciously give us all things, even when our life, the life we worked so hard to make for ourselves, turns into dust before our eyes? You know, what's interesting about this parable is the the 6 a.m. workers were content until they started comparing themselves to the other workers. As long as their focus was on their relationship with God and God alone, they were totally content. And it's kind of the same with us, right? We, we can be so content with our own unique individual relationship with God. And usually the only time we get discontent with that is when somebody else seems to be more blessed than us or have a deeper relationship with God than us, maybe, or just as more gifted than us in some area that we always wished we could be more gifted in. So, if we're here this evening, no matter the circumstances of our lives, if we can say, I know Jesus died for me. I know God's called me into his vineyard to work in his kingdom. It doesn't matter what time of the day he called us in. The fact that he even invited us in is the most amazing reality of this life. That I am his child by grace through faith. And that I know I serve a good and gracious king who's free to pour out his grace on whoever he wants, whenever he wants, with however much he wants. And that no matter what I do, at the very most, I am a slave who's only done what is commanded. And yet I serve a God who has promised to graciously give me all things. Amen. Let's pray.